Welcome to Beholder Beauty. We're talking about the beauty of freeing our body image. And my guest is Heather Creekmore. Welcome, Heather, to Behold Her Beauty podcast. And I'm so glad that you are joining us today. It's really exciting to have you. And I read your book, and I'm it's so excited to talk about it. Today's topic is Beauty and Freedom from Body Shame. And you're a podcaster and body image coach who helps women find freedom from body shame. And you authored the book, Compared to Who, and a new book, The 40-Day Image Workbook, Hope for the Christian Woman Who Tried Everything. This is a 40-day journey to rethink everything you thought you knew about food, your appearance, and body with publisher Bethany House. And you also founded the acclaimed Compared to Who podcast. And on that, I would just love for you to first tell us about yourself. Yeah. Well, it's great to be with you, Deborah. I am a mom of four, married to a fighter pilot who turned into a pastor, and we live in Austin, Texas. And I am doing the one thing I never thought I'd ever be doing in my whole life, and that is talking to women about body image issues, <laughs> because this was a big struggle for me. This was something that I didn't talk to anyone about. This was just something that I struggled with silently and really believed everyone was struggling. So I didn't really believe there was anything to talk about because it just was part of being a woman or so I observed. And so, yeah, so I'm, like you said, I'm podcasting, I'm writing books and, you know, doing, doing appearances like this to help encourage Christian women who struggle with body image in comparison. You do have this new book, The 40-Day mm -hmm. Body Image Workbook, which I just read all week, and it was just so engaging because, uh, you know, sometimes, like you said, you kind of struggle with this in silence. Mm -hmm. Like, you just think it's part of being a woman, and only it's when you start reading things, you're like, oh, well, that's how I feel about that, or, or like, I've my friend sent me a picture, like when we were 16 years old in high school, you know, the school picture that I had given to her. And okay. on the back of it, it said, here's my new picture. Too bad my body doesn't look as good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then she said, uh, I forgot about this memory that I used to drive over to pick her up and I had a red Mustang. And she said it would be full of diet right. Mm -hmm. And she said that we lived on that to try to yeah. stay skinny. Right, right. And I, it's like a memory like that. I remember that. It was so great reading your book in that sense, too, because you start discovering some of these areas and then how you see how it's kind of holding you back in your life mm -hmm. years later. Mm -hmm. At the top of your book, you wrote, and I love this, to every woman who's ever ordered a salad when she really craved a burger. And that did happen. I was in a restaurant with a group of girlfriends, and this is years ago. And one of the girls had a lovely slender figure, and she mm -hmm. said, I'm tired of eating salad. I'm going to have a pastrami sandwich. And I'm like, so on that note, so many women have body 
image issues. Mm-hmm. And as you say, battling the scale and the, mm-hmm. the mirror. And what is the root mm-hmm. of this? Yeah, well, you know, culture tells us the root is that we've got something wrong with our bodies. And if you could just fix the way your body looks, then you won't have body image issues anymore. But culture misses the reality that most actresses and models are are among those who struggle with body image issues the most. So the root is really, in my opinion, it's spiritual. This is an issue of theology versus biology, right? It's not that we were made wrong or that we're not good enough, or we just need to keep trying to perfect our outsides and then we'll feel better. No, this is what do we really believe about ourselves? Where do I believe my value comes from? Now, culture is also happy to define that for us, right? I mean, we get marketed to 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that if we had this look, this size, this type of hair, this shape, this skin, then we would feel loved, accepted, joyful, peaceful. We'd be able to rest. And yet, that's a completely different way to define where joy, peace, rest, you know, all those things come from than the way the Bible defines where those things come from, right? And so the reality is our body image issues seem like they're about our bodies. And so we keep chasing changing our bodies, trying to get free, trying to like, just, can I just be done with this already? And yet the real issues in our heart, the real issue is a spiritual issue. It's what do we really believe we're here for? Do we believe that it's okay? God made us the way he made us. Do we believe that we have value and worth even if we don't look like a woman from the cover of a magazine or from an Instagram ad, right? What do we really believe we're here for? That is so important to ask ourselves that. Mm -hmm. You write, you can wear the size, have the look, and flawless skin. But until you know you're valuable inside, you'll never feel valuable on the outside. And how do we know we are invaluable and worthy? And how does the Bible gently correct and encourage those who believe their worth is tied to how they look? Mm, Yeah, I love that. So, well, really, it goes back all the way to creation, Deborah. I I mean, and, and I think part of the reason why generations, and I write about this in the book, part of the reason why generations younger than, than you and I are struggling with this more than perhaps even we did or do is because creation's not being taught the way it used to be taught, right? And so if you believe that you're here as a happy accident and that there wasn't any intentionality in the creation of people in general, yet alone the creation of you specifically, then it really is difficult to believe that you have any kind of inherent worth or value, right? And in the church, a lot of times we use Psalm 139, 14, I am fearfully and wonderfully made verse. We use that a lot. And and I used to be frustrated with that because I was like, I'm still struggling with body image issues. And all the church tells me is you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. But the reality is God is intentional about everything he does, right? And if you look at that passage, Psalm 139, right, it says that he knit me together in my mother's womb, right? Now, I'm not a craftsy person at all, Deborah, 
But I know my mother-in-law was a big knitter for a while. Knitting is very precise, right? It's not gluing two pieces of paper together. There's precision. It's, you know, move the needle over and under. I, I don't even really know. But if you're knitting something together, you are making something on purpose, right? That's what God did for you and I. He knit us together. So God isn't surprised that I'm only five foot, five inches tall, right? He's not like, what a letdown that Heather's not tall enough to be a model. I mean, if only I had made her five foot 11, then, you know, then she could have really done something with her life. No, no, he made me my height on purpose. He gave me everything I needed physically to accomplish what he has for me to do in this life. You know, we like to say, First Corinthians tells us how our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, think about in the Old Testament what happens when God is giving directions on how his temple should be built, right? I think it's, in, it's either in First Kings or Second Kings. But these directions are very precise, like how long the logs have to be, what kind of wood it is, what all the little uh, decorative pieces and touches have to be made of. Very precise. It's the same God that designed you and I. So I think that is one way to just kind of gently respond to anyone who believes they're just not valuable. They're here. And, you know, really, if they could be better looking, they would be more noticed and maybe feel better about themselves. No, 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 no. God made you on purpose for his purpose. And that's enough. I love that so much. And that gives me just remembering that over and over, you know, and that whole visual of him knitting and being so precise and putting me together. And when I think about it in that sense, I feel his love washing over me. And you know how you can see your, I think you, you talk about that in the book, you see that picture of you in your mind. I see this beautiful child who's me, you know, and it's such a great feeling, a reset. So if you start feeling those other feelings, I really have been trying to catch those moments where I have a critical thought, you know, or say something negative to myself about my body, especially. And it can happen all the time. And then it just starts seeping in and you just start feeling just like you're not worthy. And that's not the truth. Right. I have an online course and coaching program. And one of the big principles there, one of the modules is called My Truth, right? And this is something we hear about in culture all the time, right? This next generation, everyone's living their truth. You know, this is my truth. That's your truth. And the problem with the way we think about our bodies, right? Those negative thoughts, like you mentioned, is our challenge becomes that we start to believe our own truth, right? Well, my truth is that I would feel better if I looked like this. My truth is, you know, my life would be better if I weighed this amount or my thighs were this size or my stomach was flatter or whatever, right? And all of that is my truth, Deborah. That's not God's truth, right? And then who am I to say that my truth, like, oh, Heather would be better if she was a little taller, thinner, flatter abs. <laughs> that, who am I to say that my truth is truer than God's truth? I mean, I picture Jesus standing there like, hey, I never asked you to fix up all those things. 
I never asked you to chase a better body. I want you to chase me. I want you to chase what I have for you. And I feel like so many of God's daughters are caught up under the guise of good stewardship, right? Because we Christianize everything. Like we can slap a this is good for me label on it. But under the guise of good stewardship, we are chasing beauty or chasing, you know, anti-aging or, or chasing a better body and calling it health. But if we are all consumed, and that's what I see every day, that was my story. I see women that are consumed with this, right? They're thinking about their bodies and food all the time. If it's all consuming, that's not spiritually healthy, right? And nothing that's spiritually unhealthy for me is going to be physically healthy for me either, right? So it all all has to be in the proper order. And so many of us are chasing like, I need a better body for this reason and not listening to Jesus say, no. I made you okay. Just go be, love others like I told you to do, and you'll feel so much better. I agree completely on that. Our culture does worship youth and women bombarded with anti-aging treatments. And for me, you know, into my 60s, you know, I've kind of embraced that. I have some friends that they haven't and they play around with surgery and stuff. My philosophy is that it just makes you look older in the long run (laughs) because it's not natural. The only thing that's going to make you look youthful is really spiritual, is having that radiance of Christ in you, is having that happiness, is having take care of yourself in a, a spiritual healthy way. I like how you say framing exercise is more joyful movement and reframing eating, not as the diet, but as the foods that God wants us to eat because he gave us everything that we need to eat to um, fuel our bodies and to enjoy because he loves us to eat and to enjoy it. And and I, I do admit, I do my husband, we love food. We love enjoying it. We love cooking. So, but we can get, especially as we're getting older, get into the, oh, with, you know, with, should we be doing intermittent fasting? But I'm just reading your book and I'm like, it doesn't work because the body's now in starvation mode. The best thing is just to, you know, pray on it and make the best choices you can and, and not worry about it. Our bodies were made to know how to eat. (laughs) And we have spent, at least I did, a lifetime teaching them otherwise. Like you shared about the diet right in your car. I mean, I think the theme of my life for so many decades was trying not to eat because food was the enemy. Food was bad. Food was going to ruin my weight goals. And it's so ridiculous because God made my body to run on (laughs) foods. And I need food. And I think that we've been on a wild goose chase, you know, Mr. Toad's wild ride from Disneyland, right? Like we've been on a wild ride when it comes to diet fads and diet trends, right? Because you mentioned intermittent fasting, but in the 1980s, we would have said breakfast was the most important meal of the day. So there's a little whiplash there, right? We've gone from musty breakfast to well, better not eat breakfast, right? Also in the 1980s. 
Special K was a diet food, right? Can't pinch an inch on me because I'm eating Special K. And now that's laughable, right? Oh, my word. You think you can lose weight with cereal, carbs? You know, in 1990, I was in college eating plain bagels and avoiding avocados at all costs because avocados, do you know how much fat's in one of those, right? 20, let's say 15, I'm making bombs because keto, you need more, right? But a plain bagel, you can't eat that. Like, oh goodness, what kind of health, crazy health person? That's just so unhealthy to eat those plain bagels. I mean, what we've been told is healthy keeps changing. And Deborah, we keep following it. And I just have to believe that's why so many of us are struggling you know, they're okay. Yes, we do have more processed food. Okay. We have more stress. We have more screens. We have more EMFs, all the things. Sure. Right. I'm sure that there are environmental factors. Absolutely. But I wonder to what degree our, our wild goose chase after being thin, right? Cause that's really what it's been a wild goose chase to have a thinner body. I wonder to what degree that has had a detrimental effect on our bodies and our health. And I wonder if instead of eating special K in the 80s and plain bagels in the 90s and all meat in 2020 or 2005 and all fat in 2015, I wonder what would have happened if I had just eaten balanced meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and maybe a snack or two all through those decades. (laughs) And my weight may have stayed stable, but I would have maybe been better off. I, I don't know. That's that's what I like to call in the question. I think that it would have because when we go on these crazy diets, I mean, we've been on the Atkins, the South Beach, the thing where you, you take pictures of yourself in bathing suits. <laughs> we never took after pictures. Juicing, rough, you know, just endless. And the only thing, though, that really ever Work is to stop that and then just to have a lifestyle of eating good foods, you know, whole, we'll call it whole foods, but basically of all the food groups, there's not one that's bad, I don't think. But that, again, like what you said, like, remember, we you couldn't eat butter, you'd have to margin, right? Or the spray, the chemicals. I mean, think about that. We're like, ooh, butter, bad, but chemicals on toast, yum. That's going to make me get skinny. I mean, yeah. I mean, my mom always, she laughed because she grew up in the, you know, on a farm. And, and so she grew up on organic food, mm-hmm. you know, but by the time she was a young mother, she was being sold the whole idea that if you could now, you weren't on the farm anymore, hamburger helper, mm-hmm. that's what she wanted to serve your family. And so I think things like that were, you know, and then becoming a young woman, your body's going, and it's not getting, you know, I don't know if this is completely true, but I think if you're not eating, I think there has, has, I think I read some of it somewhere, is that if your body's not getting the nutrition that it needs, then it's going to stay hungry. So you have to make sure that what you're feeding it is actually real nutrition. Well, but even beyond that, Deborah, what's really fascinating are the studies, and I quote some of them in the book, we have to be satisfied with food too. And I think there's been this misconception because of dieting and 
And even in the church, it's kind of snuck into this like asceticism where, you know, we've got to be pure around food and to be pure around food is not giving into cravings. But there's so much science out there that shows unless you are satisfied with what you're eating and by satisfied, it don't just mean that your belly feels full. I mean, your taste buds are like, oh, this is good. I'm enjoying this, right? You are constantly trying to meet that satiation factor. And that's why if you go out to dinner and you really want a slice of cheesecake for dessert, but you do the diet thing, right? The, oh no, I couldn't possibly. Oh no, no dessert for me. But you leave that restaurant and you're thinking about the cheesecake. And so what do you do? You get home and you start eating everything else that's not the cheesecake. And how much of everything else do you eat? You just keep eating because it's not the cheesecake that you really wanted. And you might not have the cheesecake at home. So you have the scoop of peanut butter. And then you have a handful of chocolate chips, you know, and then you oh, like you feel bad that you ate that. So you eat a banana or an apple or something, but it's still not it. And then you tried some crackers or, and you eat all these things when really probably you would have been satisfied with just a couple bites of the cheesecake because that's what you really wanted. And it's hard to eat like that when we've been trained. Oh, no, satisfaction bad live, I mean, for you and I, right, the diets always had rice cakes on them. Like rice cakes are gross to me. <laughs> I don't like those things at all. They make me think of dieting, but like rice cakes, right? There's no satisfaction there. But I found like I could eat three or four, seven rice cakes and still not be satisfied. But maybe that cookie I'm craving, I can just eat one or two. Now, I will say there's some people that are listening saying, oh, I can't do that because I always eat 27 cookies. If I let myself get started, I can't stop. But I would say go work with an awesome Christian non-diet dietitian because I believed that too. And now I've realized it was just my years of restriction that made me go overboard when I had a food that was a quote unquote bad food. Now I'm so much more able to relate to food in a healthy way and just have a little bit when I want a little bit, which I used to admire those people. I thought I could never be one of those, those people that made the bag of M&Ms last for a couple of days. But they never lasted for a couple of minutes for me. But it, it really is about changing your mindset about food when everything is legal, right? And the New Testament tells us there's no bad food, right? When everything is permissible. Now, of course, not everything is beneficial, right? If I live on M&Ms, I'm going to be sick. <laughs> I'm not going to feel good. Right. But, but I can have a little bit every now and then, and it's okay. And, and I can learn how to live in peace with some M&Ms and some cookies and lots of nutritious food too, that make me feel good and energize me. No. Yes, that is so true. And I love all that because I find that if I definitely eat what I wanted to, even if it's not on the, the you know, okay, example. Um, for, I think it was maybe New Year's, our friend, she's from China, and she lives here, but she gave us this giant pack of these little cake things, you know. Then I think they're like cookie cake things, and they may be from Taiwan. And and I'm like looking at it like, oh, we're going to have that in our house. There's like two of us. And she goes, they're not bad. You just ha have a little now and then. Here, have one of these. And I'll, at first I'll be like, no, no. I can, yeah, it's going to, like you said, satisfy me. 
And then I'm not going to binge. Mm-hmm. Right. And because they are sitting in the closet. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I did have a binge history at one point. I was from high school to college bulimic. Okay. And my girlfriend and I, we were reading Seventeen magazine about the models, how they perch to stay thin. And we were like, and again, I'm five foot four. I'm not a model, although though I begged my mom to take me to Studio 7 modeling school. <laughs> of course, they took our money. <laughs> no way I'm a happy to do that, right? <laughs> happy to tell your daughter she may be one. But I thought my friend and I and our young minds thought, well, there's no way really we're going to ever look like one. But what if we did what they do? Maybe we can be like them. And that's how twisted it can be because that's a very dangerous path to walk down. And so I'm glad that I segued out of that. So what about you? What were your personal struggles? Yeah, I believed that my legs are too big starting in about third grade. And so that led me to dieting with mom. So Weight Watchers, Slim Fast, you know, the three-day lemonade. I think maybe it was called a detox. I mean, we tried all the things. And by high school, I decided that diets were for amateurs and I was good enough to just go without eating. And so I would go without eating all school day and then get home from school after activities and such and be starving because I hadn't eaten all day long. I mean, so I I was an original intermittent faster, I guess you could say, (laughs) but I get home and would just, you know, be hungry. And so I'd eat and then eat dinner with my family. So they didn't really catch on that I wasn't eating all day at school. And then I go to bed feeling guilty, like I'd done something wrong because I'd eaten and I had promised myself that I wasn't going to eat. And I wake up the next morning, kind of vow and do the exact same thing again. And essentially now, from a science perspective, I can see it as I would restrict all day and then binge for a couple hours and then go to bed. Restrict all day, binge for a couple hours and then go to bed. And um, by my sophomore year of college, I lost my period for about nine months because my eating was just so out of whack. I was going to school and I just eat whatever. And then I'd go home and I'd try not to eat for a couple of days over the weekend or whatever. And then go back to school and eat and, and just on and on. So I, this was the early nineties when I was in college and they only had two categories for eating disorders back then. You were either anorexic and there was a textbook qualification for anorexia that meant you were underweight or you were bulimic and purging. And so I tried to purge, but I, I was not able to. So I wasn't classified as someone with an eating disorder. I really, I didn't think I had an eating disorder. I mean, I wasn't anorexic and I wasn't throwing up, so I didn't have an eating disorder. But now the definitions and categories for eating disorders are a little bit broader. And so several years ago, I recognized that I met the criteria for EDNOS, eating disorder not otherwise specified. Now, I think I may have even met the criteria for atypical anorexia, which has become very popular. That's a really weird way to say it. It's become, there's more and more women that have been um, recognized as having all of the criteria for anorexia, except for being underweight. It's a growing category in the eating disorder world. We're recognizing there's a lot of women that don't have that Hollywood anorexic look that we've been trained to call anorexia but yet still have very restrictive eating patterns and, and very disturbing thoughts around food and body and their heads that, that plague them. And that was probably me. And it just show how crazy 
it can be and that craved disturbing is I think as I remember that time wanting to get anorexic mm. there was a girl at school that was or they said whispered you know but I didn't and and I think really what I wanted was the like you're talking about the the underweight and and but in all reality when I look back I was never overweight and that was the, the strange part was that I just wasn't underweight and underweight was what was being promoted as the healthy weight or as the optimum weight to be. It wasn't necessarily your natural body weight that you should be, a healthy weight. No, we were being promoted underweight. And you're young and impressionable and you're trying to fit in. But this is right here important. Like what you're doing is intercepting that early. You're helping women like my age after we spent years, but why, why go through all those years? Why not get to the person early? You know, the person who created the BMI, the body mass index chart that we use, he was not a doctor. He was not trying to figure out what's the best weight for someone to be healthy. He actually was more of an anthropologist type person who was studying just who is the ideal man Oh, by the way, in Europe in the late 1800s. So the BMI chart was created by a man just kind of doing studies on the laws of averages, right? Like what, what do most men weigh? I think he did survey a couple women, but it was mostly about the ideal man, right? So for women to be subject to this BMI chart, the body mass index chart, which by the way, was adopted in this country. Well, it first came to this country in the 1950s. They first, they started selling bathroom scales in the 1920s, 1930s. So think about this. This is all pretty recent. Within the last hundred years, we know what we weigh, right? But before a hundred years ago, people didn't know what they weighed unless they went to the doctor and got weighed for a specific purpose right? There wasn't this chart telling you that your weight is what made you healthy or unhealthy. And really the chart was kind of a hack for the life insurance companies in the 1950s and 1960s. And they extrapolated some data from then. And then in the 1990s, actually those numbers from the 50s and 60s were adjusted further down. So that made the metric to meet this very random criteria on this chart that again, wasn't designed to tell you whether or not you're healthy, they adjusted those numbers down. And so now this pressure that we have to be at a certain place on the BMI chart, I think we really have to question where that comes from <laughs> and who benefits from us stressing out over this definition of our health, right? Like why aren't we focused on like just looking at blood work and blood pressure? And, and all those metrics, things we can tell from the, the level of science we do when we find out about our health, right? But instead, no, 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 this BMI chart carries, it's all about weight. And I just, oh, I don't know, Deborah, I could be a conspiracy theorist here. But there's a lot of weight loss companies that make a whole lot of money. A lot of pharmaceutical companies make a whole lot of money if we stay stuck believing that weight is the ultimate measure of health. <laughs> In fact, the studies show that if your weight can stay around the same, that's when you're healthiest. So even if your weight was above that BMI number, if you keep it about the same, that's when it's healthiest for you. What's least healthy on the body is weight going down the diet 
and then back up when you're off the diet and down with the diet and then back up when you're off the diet. In fact, I just saw a study where it said within five, if you can keep your body within 5%, either gain or lost of your weight, those people have the highest mortality rate. So it's not necessarily about being thin. It's about being stable. And I think too, there was something about on even aging about that mm -hmm. too. If you gain a lot of weight and then lose a lot of weight, gain a lot of, you start losing the elastic elasticity of your face, you know, your skin. And so I am not one for vanity, but if it will make somebody quit smoking, if it will make somebody, you know, not do the yo-yo diet, then sometimes if you think about those things that there is cause and effect for what we do to our bodies. Well, I think the challenge is like, why, aside from the health reasons that were sold, right? Like that it's always better to be thinner, right? It does make me frustrated to think like, why do we keep going on diet after diet after diet? Because we know there's going to, there's going to be a rebound, right? I mean, there just, there always is. But, but this is a fascinating thing, I think, about us. And I think it reveals something about us, right? I think most of us go on a diet because we want to rest. Now, when we go on the diet, we know there's no rest, right? You go on the diet knowing I've got to work hard. I got to, you know, really white knuckle it. I've got to do this thing. But we are such optimists that we believe at the end of this diet, this plan could be the one. This is going to be the one. And at the end of it, we'll be able to stop thinking about food in our body and just be able to be normal. Like just, oh, if I could just be normal with food and just not worry about it so much. Like that's the rest we crave. And diet after diet after diet sells us through the before and after pictures, like you mentioned, they sell us that an after picture is what we'll get at the end of our time with them, <laughs> right? But that after picture just symbolizes what you might look like for the millisecond that it took for the shutter to open and close to take that picture, right? Because you know, the next day, I mean, you could be bloated, right? The next day, everything could change, right? That's how you look for that millisecond. But anyone who's ever been on the after part of a diet knows there's maintenance, right? You don't get to suddenly stop and rest and lay on the couch and eat whatever you want. No, you've got to go on the maintenance. And then kind of gradually it starts to change again. And really, it's not our fault that it's changing again. The, the data around diets is amazing. 95% of diets fail. You have a 5% chance of keeping off a significant amount of weight loss for more than five years. Most people gain it all back within two years when they lose a certain percentage of their weight. And so it's not us. It's not weird that we're not failing right? It's not that we're doing something wrong. We don't have the willpower. We don't have that stick to it spirit. No, it's that diets fail. And that's, that's what's so frustrating and confusing, I think. Because we're talking about diets failing and, but also why are we even caught up in, in the whole diet, you know, what do we want to call it? A cyclone? <laughs> right. Yep. Um, so in Shame and Pride, I love your quote, though shame and pride seem like opposites, both keep us focused on ourselves above all else. And then you also write about how much shame you carried 20 years ago, although s smaller, which mm -hmm. is my case too. And 
so in that sense, and we know that Jesus is really the only one that can heal our shame, but if we're feeling these way, this way, what are some of the things that we can do? The culture tells us that the shame will go away when you get the size, right? When you get the after picture, right? So culture tells us that we can cover our own shame, right? You just got to quote unquote, get your act together and get the body. Or now there's a whole section of culture that says you don't even have to get the body. You just tell people that you're not ashamed anymore, right? You just wear the bikini, no matter what body size you are, and you just put it all out there and, you know, kind of threaten to give the middle finger to anyone who doesn't say you're beautiful, right? It's a, it's a whole different kind of attitude than perhaps we've maybe seen before. <laughs> but neither one of those things cover shame, right? Only Jesus, like you said, only Jesus. He's the one who takes away our shame. And so really what's underneath those other things that we do is pride, a kind of a desire. I want to take away my own shame. I'm going to do it. Thanks. Thanks for what you did, Jesus. Appreciate that. I got this one. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to get my act together and then I'm going to feel good, right? It's a desire to make ourselves righteous, right? A desire to clean ourselves up, make ourselves look good and feel good about that. And that's just the opposite of the gospel, isn't it, Deborah? I mean, the gospel says, you know what? There is nothing I can do to clean myself up, make myself look good, right? Only Jesus is the one who's going to be able to make me look flawless. He is the only one who's going to be able to cover all of my mess, right? And I think until we do that, we're kind of Pharisees, right? Like working really hard to make sure the outside looks right. The outside looks good, that you approve of my outside. You think I'm doing all the right things. How? Oh. And Jesus is like, no, I'm looking at your heart. Why are you doing that? Just surrender. <laughs> just, just give it all up. Take your brain off yourself. Take your mind off yourself, right? I mean, that's, that's where so many of us get stuck. We're just thinking about ourselves so much. We don't know that we're doing it. And for some of us, it's a protection kind of mechanism, right? Like we've convinced ourselves that we're the only ones who can keep ourselves safe, right? And so I want to keep myself safe from rejection. I want to keep myself safe from hurt. And so I'm going to keep myself safe by making sure that I think about my body all the time and the way I look all the time, but oh, that doesn't keep us safe. Only Jesus does that too. So it is a journey to being able to release that, release the pride, release the shame. And Tim Keller called it the freedom of self-forgetfulness. That doesn't mean self-neglect, but it means my first goal is to love God well. My second goal is to love others well. There's not this imaginary third like law that I have to love myself. In fact, cultures and even Christian culture says you got to love yourself before you can love others. No, no, no. That's not what the Bible says. It's love God, love others. As you love yourself, there are two commands. If there was a secret third command to love yourself, then God can't count. And I'm pretty sure God can count. So it's assumed that we already love ourselves. We might not like the way we look, <laughs> but pride and self-hatred are really both the, just two sides of the same coin. They're not opposites like we think they are. So really it's about surrender. It's about saying, nope, Jesus, like we just go, go full circle here. You created me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You have a good plan and purpose for me. And I'm just going to trust you that your truth about why you made me and how you made me is so much better than my truth. We were talking about the church and the Christian, the dot culture within the church. 
And in your book, you had talked about the Gwyn Shamlin documentary. And my husband and I had just watched that. How does diet culture divert our worship and steal our money? Diet culture is a term that basically talks about how all these messages around us are inviting us to worship something. They're inviting us to worship a thin ideal is really what it is. Maybe now we'd say a healthy ideal, but either way, it's a body size, a body type that is worthy of our worship is kind of what we're told. And so the diet companies sell that body size or that body type as if you invest here, if you do this plan, you will get that body type. And then you will be worthy of worship too, right? That's really what they're saying. (laughs) And this is the message we're getting through the before and after pictures, that true salvation comes when you look like an after. Oh, before you were in hell, but after that's heaven, because then you've got to worship a bull body. It's a false gospel is really what it is. It's a false message of salvation that is opposite of of how Jesus saves us. The Gwen Shamblin documentary is, is a bit of a train wreck. And it shows just how easy it is for us to get confused, right? How easily distracted we are on this path, how easily we'll believe that there is some sort of righteousness to our food choices. But what I eat can't make me righteous, right? It just the scripture says what a man puts in his mouth can't defile him. But similarly, it can't make me righteous, right? Or what I don't eat can't make me righteous. Right? I'm not more righteous because I abstained from processed food. There might be other reasons to do that, but that doesn't make me more righteous. Right? Or because I got in six workouts this week, closed all the rings on my Apple Watch. These are things that I think the diet culture around us has convinced us are righteousness. These aren't righteousness. They're not holiness. Right? These are just the laws of our land, our diet culture that we've been conned into believing will somehow make us feel better. And mm, that's debatable. Working on one film and the actors, part of their contract is to keep that body in shape. And so they're eating mainly chicken and it's healthy thing, but it's not satisfying. So they're eating chicken and maybe rice or maybe a vegetable. And I remember one of the guys said, oh, I want donut. And in my naivety, I said, well, Whole Foods sells vegan ones. Yeah. <laughs> because I don't want a vegan donut. No. I want a real donut. <laughs> and so all I could think is as soon as they're off the contract, mm-hmm. binge time. And then right. that's the problem because then you gain that can be very unhealthy right there. Right. And that's where you will see like, oh, look, and then they'll be in the tabloids. Look at all the weight they've gained or. No, and then sometimes there's health reasons why people gain weight. Like if you take what's one steroid? Yeah, there's yeah the prednisone and yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. If you take that, will make you, I mean, swell basically, and it's hard to flush it out of your body. I think it kind of, you know, so things like that you can't we can't beat ourselves up over that. No, and bodies change. Yeah, our bodies change. That's a really- you know what you don't. I don't see many sixty-year-old women that have the exact same shape as as twenty-somethings because bodies change. Mm-hmm. And you know what? When your daughter is thirteen, going through puberty, you don't say, "Don't let your hips change, don't let your body change." No, you say, "Oh, this is puberty. Your body changes because you're in a different season of life now." And guess what? It happens on the other side too. We got to stop pretending that it doesn't. That is so true. Uh- 
Is there, from your book, um, is there anything you want to tell us about it? With a 40-day workbook, which means that there is content to process for each of 40 days, but I like to encourage people that it doesn't necessarily mean you have to get through the whole book in 40 days because as you may have discovered, some of those days are a little heavier than others. Like some of those days you might need to sit with a little bit and, and just kind of think through and process. But the chapters are relatively short because there are 40 of them. And then there's exercises throughout. There's scripture for you to look at. There's questions for you to answer and kind of reflect on your own journey and just think about your, you know, where you're at. It's a workbook because I want you to be able to process. I don't want you to just read it and go on with your life, but I want you to really dig in and find freedom or at least get on the road to not being so bound by body image and food issues anymore. And are there workshops? Are there, you know, because I, I know you're a coach, but is there a program that people can be a part of too? Yes. Yes. So I have a, an online course and it doesn't necessarily follow the workbook. They're kind of two separate products, but I would say maybe the workbook is a good like entry into like, oh, whoa, this is what's going on with my body image. And then the course might be a good follow-up if you're really ready to go deeper. And in the course, I also offer group coaching or one-on-one -on -one coaching with me where we can just get really personal, just you know, get to the heart of why you've been stuck and where you're stuck. And I have a great time in coaching. I've got a group of 10 women I'm working with right now. And we're just, we're seeing lots of, lots of beautiful fruit. And that's been the fun thing. I've been coaching for, I guess, about seven years now. And yeah, it's just, it's always a joyful experience to be able to just walk with women as they walk out of decades of dieting and body frustration into just a whole new way of thinking and seeing these things. And where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me at improvebodyimage.com or on the Compared to You podcast. Anywhere you get your podcast, it's the Compared to You show. And my books are sold on Amazon and Walmart and all the places online that Barnes and Noble, all the places where they sell Christian books, you can find my books. I want to thank you so much for joining um, us here today, Heather. It's been lovely speaking with you. And learning about the ins and outs and nuts and bolts of the diet culture, body image issues, and most importantly, how we apply scripture to it and how God really wants us to live. Well, thanks so much for having me, Deborah. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Beholder Beauty. And I'd love you to rate the show, to comment, um, and keep in touch um, from my heart to your heart. Thank you.